I could take out of my life everything except my experiences at St. Andrew, and I still have a rich, full life. But the last tee shot I hit was more like it, that one in the playoff. Against Biden and Ray. That's right. The best thing to win the Masters, you, you will be here forever, as long as, as you are still alive, so that's the best thing. I'm very happy. Welcome to episode 81 of Talking Golf History, the history and restoration of Cobbs Creek. We are joined today by two men who are authors, golf historians, and golf architecture enthusiasts in Mike Serba and Dr. Joseph Bausch. They join us today to share the amazing history of Philly's own Cobbs Creek and the restoration of this public access gem. Mike Serba, when he is not consulting on healthcare information technology, spends his spare time as a golf course architectural researcher and is the current golf historian for the Walter Travis Society. Dr. Joseph Bausch was a former collegiate golfer at Evansville and is currently a second-year chemistry professor at Villanova University. Together, these two brilliant men started the wheels in motion to restore Cobbs Creek to its original glory. Without any further delay, the history and restoration of Cobbs Creek. Gentlemen, welcome to Talking Golf History. Thank you for having us, Connor. Yeah, good morning. Good morning. Gentlemen, can you share you know, how both of you became interested in the history of Cobbs Creek? How did that come about for both of you? So I, I guess I'll, I'll start. Um, Marion uh, Golf Club has always been a, a sentimental um, favorite of mine for uh, a number of reasons. Um, but back in 1981, I had just gotten out of college and uh, – was parking cars at a restaurant with my college roommate uh, in Upper Darby, and which just happened to be virtually across the street from Cobbs Creek. And knowing my interest in golf, one day he suggested we go over and play. And walking around there the first time uh, was really revealing um, in that you could feel that the ghosts of the past kind of still lingered uh, in those hills. And Yet the course itself at that time had been pretty run down, um, you know, kind of a shell of, of, of maybe what it was prior. And so that was fascinating to me. And the Marion connection uh, with Hugh Wilson was always a, a source of, of fascination uh, that later, years later, we kind of delved into, uh, particularly with Joe's help here. How about you, Joe? Yeah, so we could jump forward a number of years. Mike and I didn't meet until about 2007. The backstory there is maybe interest to somehow I kind of got into golf architecture after playing competitive golf for a number of years. I teach second year chemistry at Villanova University. And in the early 2000s, I transitioned from teaching the real small classes to larger group of students more diverse group of students across majors and across colleges. And I got a computer and a web page set up and I started putting together, my wife and I were starting to do some food reviews we did for our students 
we could go and to a restaurant and then the next morning I could have a review up. We know now that all happens quickly, instantaneously by Yelp and all, but that was cool at its time. And I also started getting into just taking photos as digital cameras were coming about and started taking some golf course photos and made those available to my students. And then that just sort of grew to where I got interested in other people that had done photography and saw some good photography that was going on at the website Golf Club Atlas. So I asked to join that site, got on in about 2007. And sometime, Mike's even better with the dates than I am, but sometime summer 2007 I joined and you say, hey, I'm from Philadelphia and I played Cobbs. So immediately I got to know some people. And then I went out to Cobbs sometime there in late 2007 and played it and took a bunch of photos and basically started a thread at Golf Club Atlas saying, hey, here's what Cobbs looks like. And it got a number of people interested again as people on that site have talked about the possibility of kind of doing some sort of restoration off and on for years. So we weren't new, but uh, my thread got a lot of people interested and Mike in particular said, you know, this is about time that I reach out to the Hagley Museum, which now you can get all this stuff online, but right to the Hagley Museum to see about getting some old aerials of Cobbs Creek. And he did that, and that is sort of where the ball truly got rolling on this project, and Mike can amplify that topic. Yeah, so I, I had always been fascinated ever since, um, actually, I got the book probably in the 90s, uh, The Architects of Golf, and what was fascinating to me at that time was to see, you know, the compendium of what Ron Witten and Jeff Cornish tried to do of having the you know, identifying the architect or architects we were involved with not only, you know, the Augusta Nationals and the prominent golf courses, but the local muni down the street or or elsewhere. And and so that was fascinating. So one of the things that started me into this was not only looking at the courses that were listed in that book, but those courses who were not listed in that book and wondering why. And I started doing my own research and reaching out via the old mail uh, methods of, of contacting the course themselves and seeing what information they had. And so I always love to play, play different courses. Cobbs Creek was a kind of unique situation. Um, you know, not only did it have the Marion connection, but no one really had any kind of, from our perspective, um, you know, contemporaneous information that would prove Hugh Wilson or anybody else was tied to Marion, or I'm sorry, to Cubs Creek. We also knew that the course had changed over time. Um, you know, some people would say, well, where the apartments are on one hole, that used to be part of the course, and where the driving range is, and some of the Karakung course, which is the secondary course, that was part of the course. Nobody really knew. So, I, uh, I, as Joe mentioned, I reached out to the Hagley Museum and about six weeks passed and I thought, oh, I probably need to go down there in person and visit. And one day in my in my work email, what shows up are eight aerials from the 1920s and 1930s uh, illustrating Cobbs Creek. And they were very revealing in the sense that it looked like all of the existing green sites still existed, but it was clear that the course was configured differently. And, and one, one of the things that was most evident was where today there's a driving range, uh, one of the golf holes uh, went through that driving range. So um, I, I was all excited and I was a participant on Golf Club Atlas. 
And I started a thread that said, you know, basically, hey, I'm holding in my little hands eight aerials of Cobbs Creek and not exactly sure how to post them here. But, uh, you know, it looks like on the face of it that if somebody really wanted to do it, it could go back to its original configuration because it looks like all the green sites are there. That started a flurry of interested parties jumping in, including including Jill. Um, you know, trying to number one, um, kind of piece together what what that original routing looked like. Um, it was almost like um, what do they call it these days? Group uh, kind of kind of a group effort, uh, but all electronic. And um, you know, it didn't take didn't take very long for even the fellow who was uh, charged with the uh, management company at Cobbs Creek, uh, who was the manager at the course to weigh in as well. So some of the old timers at the course got involved and probably in the first couple of days we were able to figure out the original routing. And as some people have later said, you know, a light bulb went off. It was like, oh, wow, okay. Uh, and then beyond that, uh, Joe, Joe started jumping in and Joe, you can take that part as far as your research efforts. and Yeah, after those, uh Stalin aerials came in and we basically saw that you know the course was still kind of there but we just wanted to know you know what was the whole sequencing and all I went over to my library at Villanova and talked to one of the research librarians and said I want to research more on Cobbs Creek and they were very helpful and said well tell me about it and I said well open in 1916 public course in Philadelphia and our library had just gotten a subscription to America's historical newspapers so I could search some of the Philadelphia Inquirer online. And then they also took me to this huge room that had all these microfilm boxes of other newspapers, in particular the public ledger. So a combination of that Philadelphia Inquirer and the public ledger, it wasn't very hard to find out. And there was some of those, you know, I was doing it, you know, like uh, – three o'clock in the morning, uh, things were so exciting to find sort of the announcement of the course in like 1915, the Philadelphia Inquirer shows, you know, what the course is, a little stick diagram, and it starts talking about the people that are involved, and we're like, okay, wow, Hugh Wilson, yeah, it says he was involved, and then you find that a number of other people, sort of biggies in the Philadelphia golf world, were involved in this project, and one that had never been known before that I found was George Crump. And so, yeah, things really, really got hopping on the website. And that led to me spending just weekend after weekend, either in our library or the library down in Philadelphia, the free library, trying to find every piece of information I could about Cobbs Creek. And uh, yeah, wow, it's kind of hard to believe, uh, whatever. 12, 13 years after all this stuff started, uh, the project has sort of finally begun as recently as maybe two months ago. That's amazing. So walk us through. What is? Uh, tell us about the genesis of Cobbs Creek. How did this public golf course come about? Yeah, this is a, it's, a, it's really a great story. Um, probably going back to the late 1890s, uh, certain people involved with golf in the Philadelphia area had you know, tried to promote a public golf course in the city of Philadelphia. Um, 
A.W. Tillinghast was one of the people writing in some of those early newspapers advocating for a public golf course in Philadelphia. Um, and, and the thought was that there is a large, you know, Fairmont Park system in Philadelphia. And can't we identify some areas of, this, of, of that Fairmont Park that would be utilized for a public golf course? Um, City Council and, and all resisted that for a number of years, um, you know, citing safety danger, dangers and other things. And um, at around the later part of around 1908 to 1910, Philadelphia acquired the land that is now the Cobbs Creek Park System. Again, under the Fairmont Park umbrella, but it was really an extension into the Northwest um, uh, territory of the city of Philadelphia, adjacent to uh, Delaware County, which is just across Cobbs Creek. And finally, by uh, 1913, uh, the Golf Association of Philadelphia put together a um, committee that included Hugh Wilson and George Crump uh, to identify land in the city um, that would be, you know, uh, make a good public golf course. One of the main motivations for Cobbs Creek was the same reason that Pine Valley and Marion East uh, were built at that time. Philadelphia was playing against other cities in competitions and, you know, pretty much getting their butts kicked on a regular basis. Um, New York, Boston, Chicago. And one of the reasons that was put forward by all of these prominent men was that there was no public golf course in the city of Philadelphia, but not only that, there were no really uh, tournament competitive golf courses in the city of Philadelphia with the idea that a great challenging golf course would provide uh, the city with great challenging you know, players who were able to meet that challenge over time. Um, so basically the same people um, who were responsible for the golf courses at those private clubs also were the advocates for, found the land for, uh, did the design for, and some of them also stayed on through the construction effort um, to build Cobbs Creek. This all took place from 1913, the land was identified. Um, if I were a betting man, I would say they found it on the train going past this land, going out to Marion from their city offices, um, because it's very obvious that the train runs right along the golf course. Uh, it would be, it would be if you were looking at it from a golfer's eye, uh, it would be land that would be compelling. Uh, they identified this in 1913. Took another two years before they finally got um, funding uh, from the city at that point. Um, then uh, Robert Leslie, who was of Marion, who was the president of GAP, the Golf Association of Philadelphia, um, at that time, uh, put together a committee that included uh, Hugh Wilson at its head, George Crump, uh, Abner Smith, who was two-time Philadelphia amateur champion, and the person who uh, came up with the term birdie at Atlantic City Country Club um, earlier than that, um, as well as George Claudner from Aronim Inc. And um, um, Joe helped me with this one, uh, oh, Franklin Meehan. Um, who had created his own golf course at North Hills. And these were all guys who had had prior experience with design and construction and maintenance of golf courses at their respective clubs. Um, so these guys were the kind of uh, you know heavyweights in the Philadelphia area who Golf Association of Philadelphia were leaning on to 
you know, develop golf courses uh, at that time. And Cobbs Creek got built in most of 1915, opened uh, around Memorial Day 1916. And when it was opened, I mean, uh, it was open. It was pretty much immediately hailed um, as the finest, you know, municipal course in the, in the country. Uh, so it took a Philadelphia a long time to get to that point, but when they did it, they they did it right. You mentioned George Crump, and just so people are aware that maybe don't follow uh, golf course architecture, he was the head designer, if you will, at Pine Valley. So. Uh, a force as far as a name is known in the design community. Oh, pardon me. There Absolutely. Philadelphia was an amazing hub for golf course architecture. Is there something unique to Philly that created this brain trust of designers and input for Cobbs Creek? I mean, obviously we see that at Pine Valley, right? Lots of names, lots of big names put input. What is it? Is there anything about Philly? Is it this task to catch up to the rest of the golfing world? Is that what creates that? I, th- I think I think it's that that was a strong motivator, but if I can sum it up in one word, it's it's collaboration. Um, if you look at all of those efforts, um, Pine Valley, you know, certainly when when Pine Valley was being developed, George Crump had in anybody and everybody from you know Charles McDonald to Walter Travis to uh, George Thomas to uh, you know um, Henry Harry Colt. All, all of the you know greatest minds and and lead, thought leaders of uh, golf course architecture at that time, and you know they were willing to have these discussions. These men were were fascinated with this new you know scientific uh, is, is I think one of the terms they use scientific way of designing golf courses where they were getting away in America from the old kind of steeplechase cross-bunkered golf courses to things that had more intelligence and refinement and and were uh, and and so everybody who was you know these these guys who were generally independently wealthy and had time and 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 motivation to do so would collaborate on these things so it's a hard it's a hard concept for us um I think in modern times where a golf course gets built and day one, it's a finished product, you know, is the expectation. Back then, uh, of course, like Marion East wasn't really even bunkered other than, you know, a handful at the time it opened. Uh, The thought was that you could, you know, you could um, first observe play and that would lead you to understand where best to, um, you know, to... uh, put bunkering and, and other features. Uh, very different kind of mindset than what we have today, but these guys were in it for the long haul. These guys were in it um, to consistently learn and and uh, and apply that learning uh, to their golf courses at their clubs. Um, in the case of, of Cobbs Creek, I think one of the things that we still see today in that original routing that really applies to these guys as well is this audaciousness of design. Um, you know, at that time, they didn't have huge earth-moving equipment that we have today. Um, you know, so if you had a big hill and you had to navigate it somehow, they, they would go up and over. Um, it, led, it led to stuff that I can't even imagine how challenging it must have been in, in those days in, in, you know, with hickory clubs and older equipment. Because today, you know, all of us still played uh, the golf course up until its closure two years ago for the renovation. 
And uh, it's it's very challenging even with today's equipment because it really is kind of a gravity golf course. Uh, the ball, the ball, it's great land. And that's the other thing with, with the Philadelphia area. Um, I would say by and large, it, it, there's some really good golf land around Philadelphia with, you know, rolling hills, but not too hilly. Um, you know, areas, uh, creeks and, and streams and, and, and things that were farmland, um, but, but were easily adapted for golf. Is, is it fair to say that prior to researching your book, that Crump's contribution was unknown and that prior to that, his only architectural attribute had been really Pine Valley? Is that fair? Is that a fair statement? Did you discover that? And were you sh- surprised by it? Joe, yeah, Joe discovered uh, it. Yeah, we, we discovered that. That's that's correct. And uh, I guess, well, you know, at first, yeah, we were surprised. But then the more we researched this and you saw how the project came about with getting this committee from GAP, then when you know the answer, it all kind of makes sense. So it's not surprising in the end. And do we know what his contribution was? Because I know that I believe I read in your book uh, that Walter Travis was also a contributor. Is that correct? That's correct. So so some of this stuff we can only guess at, and some of it you can timeline it to try to understand, you know, why or when that may have happened. Uh, you know, for instance, in 19... 19- 15, we know that uh, Travis was with George Crump and uh, looking at developing a reverse, a, a gal, you know, making Pine Valley reversible. Right. Yeah. Awesome. And, and uh, you know, we're still hoping to find, because uh, there's some drawings associated with that, that, that he did. And, and some of them got published in American Golfer, but uh, we think there are others. Um, but, you know, so he would have been, he would have been there at the same time Cobbs Creek was being built. There is one green uh, that had been the original. Well, it's 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 today's tenth green that is such a one-off. Almost all all of the greens at Cobbs Creek tend to be very lay of the land, um, you know, push-up standard greens that follow the natural contours of the surrounding area. Um, there's one green that that is remarkably different. Um, that we would, one of our friends, uh, Jeff Walsh, na- named the TIE Fighter, which was after the uh, Star Wars um, uh, fighter planes. And, and it essentially was a green with, with cross bunker across the front, cross bunker across the back, very large mounds on each side, and a spine running down the middle of the green, uh, dividing it in half on a short par four. So it was almost like a fortress green. And, you know, as we look at old aerial photographs, um, things like the original 12th green at Garden City or the 16th green at Columbia, both where Travis had uh, input, um, we like to speculate, and, and we have no proof of this, we like to speculate that that was his, um, you know, contribution uh, to, to Cobbs Creek. That may or may not be the case. Um, but one other one other person who deserves mention as we as – we, um, talk about the people who were involved. William Flynn, uh, of architectural prominence, was the superintendent at Marion at the time it was being built. And he was credited in the articles with actually doing the shaping of the greens and and the hazards uh, at Cobbs Creek. That's just amazing, isn't it? I mean, it it really is. It's an amazing list of characters. And uh, I mean, some being 
for the lack of a better term, golf influencers, others architects or budding architects. Uh, I don't know. When I read your book, I was taken back by all of the names associated. I think I knew some of them, but I did not know the the whole formed list, which is practically amazing. Public support for this was high, and it extended a little bit further than Philly. According to your book, it went to even the highest authority in the United States. Yeah. Yeah. President Taft was an advocate uh, of golf, and and, and, uh, I'm sure the, the prominent folks in Philadelphia who were trying to gain favor with the local city government um, knew of his uh, affinity for golf and uh, got him to weigh in uh, by a way of letter uh, as, you know, recommending that Philadelphia uh, pursue a public golf course in the interest of the kind of health and well-being of the local citizenry, uh, which which is great stuff. Yeah, um, some interesting backstory to that sort of why course Philadelphia is pretty historic back then still is and how how he kind of got involved I think it was more than just that he liked to play golf he had been in the city here and a very good trivia question for my colleagues here at my university Villanova is who's the only current president to give a uh, commencement speech at Villanova and it was President Taft and I believe the reason why that happened was he was visiting in this area frequently because his daughter went to Bryn Mawr College right near Villanova. So I think there's the tie-in for how this happened. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. So it was called, Mike and Joe, it's called the ideal course. You see that in a lot of uh, you know press clippings. I found this really fascinating. Maybe I don't want to give it away here. Talk about if we could jump into A.W. Tillinghast as this amazing beacon of light for public golf in Philly, and then there's this weird moment where he's kind of questioning the sight of the course, and he kind of flips on it a little bit of the project. Go into that weird dynamic, because he was. it seems to me he was one of the very early advocates, yet he's not chosen to be the architect. And then he's all for it. And then he kind of stood out questioning, you know, the site. Yes. So clearly, uh, I, I think one of the most amazing things about uh, Tillinghast was that he wore so many hats in the game of golf, right? So he would be an, a fiery advocate for things he believed in. He was also a creator of golf courses with his own you know, opinions of architecture. And he was also a critic of golf courses through his writings in both, you know, newspapers as well as periodicals of the time. I, I frankly, you know, wonder sometimes where he found the time uh, to do all of this. Uh, I mean, the amount of writing, especially uh, Joe found of, of him, his at that time, he wrote from everything from Philadelphia Cricketer Magazine to uh, Joe can list them off. But one, one of those roles was was a critic. And he he being a professional architect at that time, um, it was unlikely the city was going to to, you know, officially hire an architect. So what they agreed with with the city was that. Um, they would provide this committee to work with the park engineers 
and and the associated laborers to you know get the golf course approved first in concept and design. And, and one of the limitations they were working within at that time was that no trees could be removed in any part of Fairmont Park. So they had to figure out how to do the golf course around that. Um, but secondarily, that um, uh, you know they were doing it for the good of the game. For the love of the game, not and all of these men. All these men were amateur architects. Where where Tillinghast kind of was along into that professional side, uh, pretty early on. Uh, whether or not he had any kind of negative feelings about that, um, I wouldn't necessarily want to speculate. And, but he and he did make a good. What I think was a good point in his criticisms was that for a public golf course with a a, a, a at the time. <laughs> a lot of brand new players to the game, you know, there are probably more blind tee shots at Cobbs Creek than would be ideal uh, from his perspective, uh, simply because these folks wouldn't necessarily know, uh, you know, all of the safety uh, issues and, and other things related to it. So um, that is, you know, that, that, that criticism, I think, I think was fair. Uh, these days viewed through modern eyes, looking at some of those holes, they fall into that uh, audacious category. So when you look at a hole like number four at Pine Valley, where you're just going, you know, up over this giant wall of sand and it's, you know, blind at the top, it's, there's those kind of parallels uh, you see at Cubs Creek. How do we put a finger on who to give credit to for the design of, of Cobbs Creek? Like it has a definitive architect behind it, but it's, it's a list of contributors. Is it not? I think I think that's fair. We we do have one article that said that uh, Hugh Wilson drew the I think the exact wording was initial initial design for the course. Um, we also we also know that he and Ab Smith and George Claudner and Franklin Meehan, not necessarily Crump, were around through the construction phase. One article mentioned that uh, Hugh Wilson spent six months on the layout. And that was their their term for layout at that point was really in the construction phase, and Ab Smith gave up all his Sundays for the same period of time, um, you know. Uh, so, I I like to think of it as a as a committee effort. I think I think there's reflections of you know kind of all of their architecture in what's out there. Um, Hugh Wilson was likely the the primary one because. What he had done at Marion um, just prior to Cobbs Creek being built, uh, designing not one but two golf courses, and, and those were committee efforts as well, you know, within Marion, uh, but designing not one but two golf courses that were the co-hosts for the 1916 U.S. Amateur, um, he he would have been he would have been viewed as the guy who had the most. Um, architectural knowledge and probably uh, some deference was paid to his opinion uh, is my guess. Joe, when it opened in 1916, did it live up to the initial hype? I think so. You had you know, riders come down from New York City. They might have been angling to get better public golf in New York City, saying that Cobbs is the best public golf course they've ever seen. So, And it was simply to be judged by the amount of players that were on the course it was just crazy how I mean, those numbers were staggering that you shared in the book 
I mean, staggering numbers. Yes. They were, you know, by the 20s, it was doing 60, 70,000 rounds. Now, we don't know if those were rounds were all completed. We do know that people used to show up on the hill at 2, 3 in the morning, put their golf bags in a line, and then come back later, like 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning to tee off. So, um, you know, we were, Philadelphia was one of the last kind of big cities to have a public golf course, right? New York and Boston and D.C. and Cleveland and Chicago, they all had public golf course before Philadelphia did. So they come in 1916, Joe. That's really late in the golfing timeline. And, you know, and golf was just, in my opinion, reading, you know, it's just really exploded at that point. Right. With the, um, um, you know, the, the greatest game ever played, when was that? The 1912 match? 13. 13, yeah. With, with, you know, the USAM at Marion in 1916. That was a biggie because that was where Bobby Jones kind of made at his coming out. It um, it was all kind of uh, aligned to have, a, to have a huge interest in the course. And it was because not long after that, the talk was, wow, Philadelphia needs more public golf courses. Right, yeah. I mean, there was at least a few people who believed it was better than Pine Valley, which for you folks that don't follow golf course architecture has is generally regarded as the best golf course in the world. So that's certainly high praise. Yes. Um, you know, may, may, maybe a little homerism, um, but it's... It, you know, the original golf course was both beautiful and intensely challenging. And I, I and and to all levels of players, yet yet the longest, you know, really forced carry on the golf course was, you know, maybe 140 yards across a creek twice. So it, it wasn't difficult in the sense of, you know, how we necessarily think today. Um, you know, in a, in a world of, you know, island greens and widespread use of water and woods and, and things like that. It was, um, it was really, I think, gravity golf is the term I like, which is the game starts getting interesting once the ball hits the ground. Uh, because you not only have to figure out where to uh, hit it to, but where it's going to stop. Um and and I think Cobbs Creek has a lot of attributes in that respect with even something like an Augusta National, where, where the landforms are just so compelling and the golf course routed so intelligently over that land and the greens and the green sites located in areas that just uh, put an emphasis on approach play uh, being, uh, you know, the, you know, a lot of room to drive it. Uh, but but then it gets ratcheted up on on the approach and and around the greens and and certainly putting, um, so it's that it's that kind of golf course. Uh, you know we often get the question in our uh, you know restoration efforts of are you guys trying to do another Beth Page and the answer is no um, we're trying to do you know a Cobb's Creek um, and by that we mean. Cobbs Creek was designed as a certain kind of golf course that, that I just described, where, where Bethpage is more, you know, narrow, tight bunkering on both sides, long, um, certainly, you know, uses the land as well in, in, a, in, in an excellent way. Uh, but, 
but it's just a different kind of approach. I think Beth Page is more of a test of accuracy and length and and an aerial game. Uh, Cops Creek is a little bit more subtle in that regard. But certainly not that less difficult. I mean, the scores of the early matches that were shown were, you know, not blowout. No one's breaking scoring records out there. No. And, and when they hosted the you know 1928 United States Pub Links, uh, I think at the time it was the highest medal, 36 wall medal score. Uh, numbers, maybe 152, I think was was medal. Um, but again, you know, just trying to imagine playing playing with the equipment of that time um, is is uh, difficult uh, to imagine because the golf course was, you know basically has not been lengthened that much since that time. So they were playing the same golf course that, you know, people played in the forties and fifties until the, the course, um, you know, was changed in the, in the 1950s for reasons I'm sure we'll get into. Yeah. I, well, I'll tell you another little factoid that blew me away was the first professional at Cobbs Creek, the Wii pro from North Berwick. Like what? I, I didn't even realize he ever left North Berwick. I had no idea. What's, he wasn't there long. What's the story there? Yeah. So I, I think it was largely ceremonial. Sure. And and um, so his son, Benny Sayers' uh, son, was the uh, pro at Marion at the time. So uh, George Sayers. So uh, Benny was, I'm sure, over here to to visit him. And as part of that, you know, Robert, Robert Leslie being the president of Marion at the time, president of the Golf Association of Philadelphia, I'm, I'm sure they got Benny Sears over for the, you know, opening ceremony and the honorary uh, first professional. <laughs> Love it. I, I don't know that he did, honestly, you know, much, much beyond that initial day. Um, but it was certainly a, a great little find to uh, as well to see that. And, and just kind of so maybe one part of the backstory that's important, you know, Joe, Joe had uh, mentioned finding all these articles in all in the um, archives and and it was it was great and at some point my background had been in journalism even though that's not what I work in as a profession but I had decided to put together all of these and try to tell this story and and put together all these articles he was finding in a um, in base with a narrative around them just with the idea kind of both of us thinking that hey we should tell this story um, because we think, and we were younger and idealistic at the time, we think that why wouldn't somebody restore this course back to its original routing? Um, you know, it's all there for the taking. All the land is still owned by the city of Philadelphia. Um, certainly it looked like an exceptional golf course. It had all this praise. Um, you know, why wouldn't you do it? Um, that that's kind of was the thinking that started us on this uh, odyssey. I tell you, one of the great hallmarks of Cobbs Creek, I think anyway, is that it was truly public. Joe, would you mind speaking to its track record promoting golf for all? That's right. It was um, everybody got to play it. Didn't matter who you were, and that um, that brings you know a, a good part of the story because you know rather famous golfer in our country, Charlie Sifford. Mike can correct me on some of these facts. He he got sent here by his family, I think, when he was still pretty young, maybe in his teens, maybe in his early 20s. I think he was living down in North Carolina and was sent to live, I believe, with an uncle 
which I think was working at the Nabisco plant up in Philly. And the story goes, he came here and said, hey, where can I play golf? And they said, go to Cobbs Creek. And and he got there and, and was really surprised to see anybody could play Cobbs Creek. And that wasn't true at the public golf courses where he grew up. Yeah, so he... he um he came in and he thought he had some game and, and what he quickly learned was there were people like Howard Wheeler um, at the golf course who was probably maybe the um, you know most unheard of great golfer in the first half of the 20th century. Um, he had uh, he was he was a, a Cobbs Creek golfer. He was a, a, a black fellow who uh, played golf cross-handed, uh, won four, um, what they used to call the, the National Negro Open. It was, it was the um, African American Golfers uh, Association. It was open to white golfers as well in their tournaments, but, uh, but it was primarily black golfers. He won four of those championships um, over the years. He also qualified for and played in the 1950 U.S. Open at Marion. Um, played in some tur professional tournaments at Cobbs Creek. Uh, unfortunately, by that time in, in 1950 or so, he was already on the decline. Most of his, you know, youth was spent in the in the 30s and and 40s um, at, at the highlight of his game. But but he, as the story goes, um, Sifford thought he you know could play a little bit, and so Howard Wheeler. Uh, played him and and I think I think uh, by the 11th or 12th hole the match was already effectively over uh, with Wheeler uh, winning winning significantly but it really I think inspired um, Charlie Sifford to hone his game because he was just shocked that he could he could play there and nobody would run him off the golf course and uh, he he uh, made that practice area at Cobbs Creek his his home away from home uh, and developed his game that uh, you know, led to his uh, his in incredible rise. Uh, you know, within the game and and recognition that we respect these days. And Cobb's Creek did did it not host a National Negro Open? Am I wrong on that? I don't know if I read that or off the top of my head. Yeah, it hosted four of them. Remarkable. I think I think right. it did four or three, Joe. I think it's four. Yeah. Which that's amazing, but all of that is amazing. I, I think. Um, but there's there's also it has this amazing progressive track record. But when the first national spotlight came to the course in 1928 for the U.S. Public Links, there was also controversy. Correct? If you wouldn't mind diving into that. Yeah, Joe, you know that story pretty well. Yeah, I don't know. I wonder how much I really want to how deeply want to get into that topic. Uh, yeah. Yeah, at some at some point, the nitty gritty of that story deserves to be told, and I sort of have a whole lot of data on that. Some of which that I have not released to the masses, uh, but basically, um, two African American golfers. One was from Chicago, I think, and one was yeah, from it was New Wilmer Curry. Stout and Robert Ball. Ball was a four-time UGA Open champion. And he was caddied for Bobby Jones, by the way. Very interesting factoid. Yeah, wow. they both, um, uh, one 
had a low enough score to qualify from the, you know, from the stroke play. And the other, I think, was a good enough score to get into a playoff. And somehow they were accused of breaking rules and were basically disqualified from the tournament. They took it to court. And that was kind of an interesting, fast process and uh, and how that was reported in the media, depending upon which newspaper you read. I've gone and gotten the how it was reported by the African-American newspaper. It, it is fascinating what happened there, but I think it's really clear a tremendous injustice was done. I have no doubt about that. Yeah, it's amazing. I... I so funny, this comes up in this podcast. I, I didn't realize there was a connection, but I'm doing a podcast, which is one of my narrative podcasts, which is on a separate subject uh, that has to do with discrimination. And this story came up in my research. What I find from it, and uh, Joe, it sounds like you're going to write a book on it, so I'm not going to ruin it. So <laughs> I'll just say, but what I found from it is the courts essentially found that there was no evidence of them cheating, yet exonerated the tournament and the USGA for, you know, what happened. And I believe they gave them the option to rejoin the tournament and ball and stout, uh, decided that they shouldn't restart the tournament and for that, the love of the game, they should continue playing on. So though they had their legal right to rejoin the tournament, it had gone too far. And I think they just wanted their names to be cleared more so than, you know, get the recognition or restart the tournament, which I thought was pretty amazing on their part, considering what had occurred. Yeah, it, it was very honorable. And I think that's a very good summation, Connor. Um, they, they, you know, they realized that in all practicality, you can't just restart a tournament. You couldn't, you know, the second round play or whatever it was, or the, or the, the, uh, match play, I believe, maybe had already started by the time there was an injunction. And if if they, you know, used their legal means to uh, impact the tournament, it would have been it would have been really to the to the negative overall of the tournament. So I think they both did the gentlemanly thing and and uh, and walked away. Yeah, and I mentioned this, Joe and Mike. I, I mentioned this because it is history. It's it's a dark period in history, and it doesn't reflect on the golf course, but perhaps mankind, you know, as flawed beings, I suppose, even more so back then, I hope. Um, yeah. Cobbs Creek was heralded as one of the best public golf courses in America. It was blessed with the design touch of several Hall of Fame caliber golf course architects. It was open for all, hosted professional tournaments, hosted USGA events, hosted the UGA, and such illustrious history what happened over the next 50 to 60 years? How did Cobbs Creek change? Why is it not regarded today as one of the best public golf courses in the country, let alone the best, you know, one of the best golf courses in the country? What happened over those next 50 to 60 years? I'll, 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 I'll give that one a shot. <clears throat> so in the, in the early 1950s, you know, we just come out of, World War II, uh, world's in the Cold War. Um, people are starting to get back to maybe some degree of normal, but um, you know there's still the looming you know threat of nuclear war. Um, about 15% of the golf course property 
of of the original 18 hole course uh, gets annexed by the U.S. Army in an agreement with the city to build a uh, air defense site there with the big gun, big artillery guns. Um, they you know the army comes in they basically level that portion of the property uh, you know put barracks and 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 buildings for uh, as well as the guns uh, get located there. Uh, the reports at the time, I think, and, and and that was on what was the originally the 13th hall, which was a par five uh, at the at the far western northwestern end of the property. And you know, the news reports at the time, and I'm sure they probably kind of believed this, uh, were like, well, this will only affect one or two holes of the golf course, and and in actuality, because of the way golf courses are routed and linked and and you, you touch one part and you pop you know you squeeze one part and it pops out over here uh it ended up affecting and and i would say negatively affecting six of the golf holes on the course um they were they became kind of narrow the entire golf course property became narrowed um some holes were truncated what they did using the original green sites was was very clever and you know, still provided some some decent golf, but that that certainly was a a compromise. That when we did learn the original routing, it was like I say a light bulb moment of oh wow, and arguably you know those were six of the uh, you know best and most noteworthy golf holes on the on the golf course originally. So that was that was the first thing. The other the other thing that started happening with the I'll say. Um, suburbanation, <laughs> suburbanization of America is that, you know, people were moving out of the city and the cities were losing a lot of their income and tax base. So uh, with that, uh, you know, ha- having money to run golf courses uh, became lesser priority as, as, as is only right and, and shouldn't be. And so things like capital investment, reinvestment, uh, in drainage systems and, you know, just the infrastructure of the golf course and the maintenance of the golf course suffered over time. Um, the course went through a series of management companies um, back as long, almost as long as I can remember, at least over the past two or three decades, there were various people who talked about maybe restoring Cobbs Creek and recognizing uh, the history of it and what was possible there, but none of those efforts really got much traction over time uh, for a variety of reasons. There were, you know, some well-intentioned, um, but uh, you know, it's it's like any any anything that um, you know suffers from lack of constant maintenance and reinvestment. Uh, it's going to slowly erode and decay. Uh, in the case of Cobbs Creek Golf Course, we also, with that suburb, you know, growing suburban, it, uh, things that were farmland all of a sudden became asphalt. Um, so flooding of the golf course became more, uh, you know, more prevalent. Uh, greens uh, would would get, you know, partially washed away during high rains. Um, so that that those all of those factors kind of contributed to and and the fact that you know th- nobody really ever made money including the city on the golf course because everybody wanted to keep the the green fee at a rate that the public could afford so all those factors led to that kind of slow gradual decline can you walk us through the process of 
trying to get the city to restore this architectural gem. You, you don't just go up to them and say, listen, this used to be an amazing golf course. We'd like to, you know, get a couple million dollars or, and restore it. What Walk us through, like, how do you, if, if someone's listening today and they've got a golf course that needs to be restored, walk them through your process. How did you take about this effort? So I'll, I'll start by saying, in, I'll, I'll try to paraphrase Hugh Wilson. Um, if we had known half of what we didn't know at the time we started this, we never would have done it. Um, and, and, you know, he said that in, in relation to creating, you know, Marion East. And, and uh, I, I think, you know, with a little twist on it, we're, we're, we're thrilled that we started this and we're, we're thrilled that it's now, you know, starting to happen. So, so that's, that's the good news. But this is this is not this is not for the faint-hearted. You know, we originally thought that um, you know just with a couple million dollars, if we could get somebody to contribute um, with uh, you know the foresight to improve this golf course, recognizing that the city didn't have the money, we always knew it had to be you know privately funded or some kind of private public partnership. Um, that well, why wouldn't you do it? that that was that was very very naive on our part that 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 didn't include an understanding of why anybody would put money into what they saw as a failing or declining public asset uh that didn't get into the number of stakeholders uh of a city-owned property uh that didn't get into number of you know different constituencies who all um, you know, f- had their own maybe thoughts about what this should be. And and probably most importantly, what we didn't know is that nobody would do this and, and you know, excuse the term, but half-assed. Um, if somebody was going to do it, if somebody was going to really invest in this, they wanted to make sure it was done right and serving all of the, you know, all of the different constituencies and interests that make up the golf course. So this project to be done right had to have a big community component, a big education component, uh, a big history component, um, a, a ability to succeed in the long run, um, an ability to reinvest in itself. So one one of the uh, I think smart things that was done by the folks in the foundation that was you know created the 5013C uh, was they came up with an agreement with the city of Philadelphia that we will provide all this capital revitalization to the property and we will maintain and run it uh, at a high level ongoing for two things one is a a lease that is much longer than what uh, normally, uh, the city of Philadelphia was comfortable doing on a, on a on a city property, and secondarily, that the money raised on on the golf course goes back into the golf course for per, you know to keep it at a certain level in perpetuity. Um, those were the keys. The other the other thing that was critical was we Joe and I had known Gil Hansen and Jim Wagner back when they were kind of the local architects in the Philadelphia area. And, and, and Gil would come over on his tractor when a green would flood out and just rebuild it pro bono. Oh, that's uh, amazing. To do the right thing for the game of golf, back before anybody even really knew who Gil Hans was. And so from our perspective, you know, he always had right of first refusal on this project. And, 
it's kind of a testament to their patience and interest in this project that they they've built they've done uh, you know several master plan efforts um, through this process for no money um, and and have put in enormous amount of hours over the years um, so kudos to them and 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 thankfully they're still with us and on the project and uh, and you know hopefully we'll get moving forward shortly here now I'm going to ask you to see if I can get you to toot your own horns. Are you the architects of the restoration? What I mean by that is, did your efforts, amongst others, kick off this restoration project? Is that fair to say? <laughs> I see you hesitating. Many, <laughs> yeah, have been involved in this project. It's um, Mike likened it to a like a track meet to a you know. A, a four by 800 or something like that. And the first part of this race, Mike and myself and some others were the, you know, we were the ones that were pushing this forward. And then it led to bringing, getting other people interested in particular. What really made that happen was Mike's ability to write and my ability to research and putting together this book. And that's what helped get people interested to see how important this project is. And yeah, and then it's, it's just had a whole bunch of legs to this race since. So yeah, so Joe and I are, are you know, have always been public golf course uh, guys and we're working people and, and, and we don't have, you know, deep pockets, but our thought was always that, hey, maybe we can get some people interested who, who, who do. And, and thankfully, uh, Chris Lang, who's who's probably the second most prominent amateur golfer ever to come out of Philadelphia, um, with Jay Siegel being being the first, uh, you know, got interested real early. Uh, we met with him. He he kind of saw the vision. He had contacts. Well, he still you know has contacts in the game of golf all over the place, um, as well as you know in the city. He got some people interested who. Um, have those have those deep pockets and and resources. Um, uh, we we went through, you know, various various ups and downs. People coming into the picture, helping out for a period of time. Um, you know, I would say, you know, we're we're still we're still here. Thankfully, the foundation uh, works with, with us, and and we try to work hand in hand with the foundation. We aren't really members of the foundation. The foundation is a very small group of people uh who are made up of a board and a, and a handful of employees but but we continue to work you know both pro bono to advance the uh the foundation as we can and and uh, when they need uh help on specific projects for fundraising and other things so um architects is too strong a word but we were crazy enough we were both crazy enough uh through the last decade or more to think that this can and should be done and and so we've been the public face of it is the way I would probably put it. Love it. Can you give us kind of a timeline, like a rough sketch from, from the genesis of, hey, we should do this, and to it will be delivered, as you understand it today? Just maybe some hallmarks of, of moments in time that you thought were critical impasses that you know, led to the restoration efforts of Cobbs Creek. Want to try that one, Joe, or you want me to give it? Yeah, double team that one. Sort of a big start to getting this out there for people to be interested in was I think I have it right. 
uh, in 2008. So right, things kind of got cooking in late 2007. We saw the potential, and then we got Joe Logan interested, a prominent golf writer for the Philadelphia Inquirer, and really sort of the last true big golf article he did before leaving the Inquirer and starting MyPhillyGolf.com, a little plug in there for his site, is uh, one was at some time in 2008, the Inquirer let him do a full-page article on this crazy idea we had for restoring this golf course, right? The entire page of the sports page, but that hardly is ever done. And that just that really got people interested. And that's where we sort of formed this Friends of Cobbs Creek Golf Course. And I then put together a web page that ran locally on one of my servers here to try to promote the project for quite a while. Um, then, you know, not long after that, Right, the this just started sort of gaining some steam. Chris Lang got interested. He got a copy of the book and said, "Wow, we've got to do this." As Mike had hinted at, and uh, just you know, a few minutes ago, then you know, Mike and I were just so you know, as he said, we're thinking, "Who wouldn't want to do this? Just get some money together and take some trees down, and darn it, we'll just have this great golf course, right?" And uh, uh, we kind of thought that, wow, with the U.S. Open at Marion in 2013, there was a real nice uh, presentation that was done, uh, you know, an interview that was done by Matt Janella came out to Cobbs, interviewed Mike and I and Chris. Chris and Mike were on camera. It was just a beautifully done piece. And we thought, wow, that's that's got to that's gotta do it. That's just going to make the city want to just jump and do this. And, well, things just don't move as easily as that and it took quite a while to get the support of the city and get this sort of in front of city council for a vote and maybe mike can amplify that topic sure so so we uh we managed to get some folks um one person in particular uh who who could you know help us navigate with the city um, because we're all, you know, we're all, I'll call them suburban guys and, and don't really have a, a good knowledge of the machinations of, of city government or, or how all of that works. And so we did end up with a, a thankfully with a, with a hearing in, in front of uh, city council and an, a, to uh, agree to a, a lease arrangement. And that got approved. Uh, after after some harrowing uh, testimony, um, where some of the council folks, um, you know, seemed to kind of think that the agreement was us buying 400 acres of property for 20 million dollars, and kind of disavowing them of that notion and saying, no, 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 we're we're you, the city still owns the property. We're just putting 20 million dollars, which has since grown to 65 million, by the way. Uh, of, ca- of capital investment into the property for all of these needs that we've outlined for education, for kids programs, for uh, community center, for um, you know upkeep and, and care and feeding of, of these golf courses in perpetuity and trying to keep a, a reasonable green fee uh, for local residents, right? So, uh, we, we ended up getting a, a passing of it by a unanimous with the city council. Uh, the mayor signed it that day. 
Uh, and then, and then uh, you know, as we began the process of fundraising, because both that just obligated both sides to meet certain requirements over the next year for the lease to start to commence. That included us having $20 million in the bank, uh, or the foundation having $20 million in the bank. That included us outlining, you know, what these programs were going to look like, um, et cetera. And then, and then COVID hit, right? So uh, that put that put the brakes on everything, kind of from a fundraising standpoint, uh, primarily. So we asked for an extension with the city. Um, that got approved. Uh, more time to go back, and and uh, and I guess it was in the what was it fall of last year, Joe, when this finally got. Um, approval from the city and all the announcements were made. Um, and again, the, the, the dollar number went up to $65 million. Uh, the creek, the creek work itself, just to flood proof that creek and I'll call it flood proofing because there's, you know, really no such yeah, thing anymore. Yeah. hundred year but, floods and 500 year yeah, floods. And yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, that part alone is $15 million. There's over three miles of waterways. And, and just so folks understand, there were, there were, you know, two 18-hole golf courses at Cobbs Creek, the original, and then a second a secondary overflow course called Karakung. So the entire, you know, footprint of the property is just under 400 acres um, with not only Cobbs Creek running through uh, the length of it, but also another prominent waterway called Indian Creek that comes in and is a tributary into Cubs Creek. So there's, there's a, a lot, an enormous amount of work and, and uh, an enormous cost associated with that. Um, I, you know, and I, I, I really want to commend the folks who have been involved in that area. Uh, the McGuire family and the McGuire foundation uh, really were the folks from a financial standpoint who, made the financial commitments that we would, you know, meet uh, certain financial targets and obligations. Um, they, they're they very well known for their philanthropic efforts in the Philadelphia area, particularly around education. And they must have the patience of saints uh, to, to still be here all, all these years later. I'm sure there's less complicated uh, projects they could give their money to. Um, but uh, they, they've been they've been you know outstanding through this process, and they were the ones who got the 5013C uh, started and are still uh, heavily involved in the project at every level. Um, the fundraising efforts efforts continue because the McGuire's certainly want to um, you know make sure this happens, but they also would like to make it a community effort. And uh, so we've we've been we've been fortunate in that we've had you know any number of uh, contributors. Um, that have that have uh, given us traction and given us credibility uh, to the public uh, in terms of monies raised already. Um, uh, kind of happy to report that just uh, just a little over a month ago, uh, work actually started on the property to prepare the golf course uh, for um, you know for the the restoration. Um, that has been a very visible effort in the removal of, of trees. Um, that hasn't gone unnoticed, um, you know, in the community. So it's been a, there's been a little bit of um, discussion and controversy, uh, and you know, I'm 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 confident over time 
that people are going to see the net environmental benefit to the property as a whole that yeah yeah we're going to need to i mean you have 100 100 plus years of overgrowth um and and you need you know even just to do the creek restoration and get equipment in to to work on the creek requires a certain amount of, of tree removal so um you know, and I understand. I understand. Everybody loves. You know, everybody loves forests, especially in urban areas. Um, but uh, uh, things are things are continuing apace. Uh, fundraising's continuing apace, as well as uh, you know, getting the property ready. And the next phases will be to uh, uh, you know clean up the trees off the property that are you know today on the ground. Um, so anyway, so what is your expectation for delivery, gentlemen? Is there one? The, the timeline, the target timeline is to have the driving range and community center open in 2023. Um, you know, part of, part of the thinking there is we get people to be able to, you know, expose people to golf again. The driving range that's going to be built is, is pretty significant two layer, two layer driving range, um, you know, kind of state of the art. Uh, thing and and uh, the golf course the the target is for 2024 uh, opening um, you know like like any plan uh, that would depend on things falling into place in a certain sequencing and timeline um, and that's you know that's that'll be as early as it could open I would put it that way maybe I can ask this how can people contribute? to the restoration of Cobbs Creek. Is there a website they can go to to give money? How do people go about helping? Yeah, they sure can. A really great website, the CobbsCreek.org. That is the place to go. And uh, there's there's a place that you can donate your time and your services. And your money. I only have a couple more questions for you. So um, you've seen the plans. How close will restored Cobbs Creek be to the original that was touched by many of Philadelphia's School of Golf Design? Well, it people ask that question in various forms to us. They want to know, is it going to come back to what it was in 1916? And the answer is very close to that. It would be better to say that it's coming back to what it was in 1928. That's when the U.S. Publix was there. And there is a there was a par three originally on the golf course that's simply not going to be brought back. So we're basically bringing it back to 1928. And those who know the two of us, right, we've invested a significant portion of our lives on this project. <laughs> I can't even imagine. Uh, you probably know you, you can't imagine. Trust me. You can't. <laughs> Thankfully, we have lives that are just extremely tolerant. It's always known how good Cobbs Creek can be, sort of bringing it back to what it was. But now that you can get out there with some of the clutter currently removed and see better the landforms, and based upon some of the research that I found suggested that, for instance, the 18th hole wasn't quite built in the way that it was desired, we are simply giddy to see the final project. I believe that is going to be absolutely out of this world good. Joe's saying better than Pine Valley's on the record, folks. 
<laughs> telling you that there's going to be people that are going to be absolutely shocked. That's awesome. They, they, they just some, you know, we kind of known it for a long time there when you play, but I get it. If you don't have the eye and you don't have the ability to sort of just see around the clutter, it's just a remarkable piece of property. When you consider what this is going to be for the community, particularly what I'm really anxious to see sort of the trajectory of the educational part of this, it's just going to be fantastic. Well, let me ask you this then. Uh, this is, goes to both of you. What does it mean to you? What does it mean to golf course architectural enthusiasts? And what does it mean to the golfers of Philly, the restoration of Cobbs Creek? Per- personally, I, I think Joe and I both look at this as our lifetime legacy um, to a large degree. Um, you know, as somebody who probably would have found a lot worse things to do at my time um, if I hadn't started playing the game a week before my 13th birthday, um, you know, I feel like this is, uh, you know, payback, my payback <laughs> to a game that has really, uh, you know, saved my life uh, without being overly dramatic. Um, so, so that that to me is is important. I, I think to the city of Philadelphia, I think I think they have no idea yet. I think that's the kind of great part about this is they they don't. I, I think most people, because it's in an area that some of some of the courses is um, you know I'll call it an underserved um, uh, neighborhoods. Um, there's a there's a very there's a thinking that goes with suburbia in Philadelphia that's kind of like, oh, I'm not going into the city sometimes, you know, with some groups of people. Um, I, I think this is going to help, um, call it, develop that area of Philadelphia in a way that we we can't even begin to predict over the years, particularly with the education components that are built into this Um and exposing kids, more kids to the game, uh, you know, is just is just a great thing. Uh, so, I, I think I think we're we're just you know, there it was a saying I read one time that says you know, wise man plants a tree knowing he uh, may never get to be under the shade of that tree or live long enough to be under the shade of that tree. So I think this is kind of the analogy. How about you, Joe? I cannot say it any better than that. This is, I I hope particularly some of the people that are listening to this that maybe, you know, are, are not just your golf architecture nerds will see that this is much, much more than sort of showing off the Philadelphia School of Gar- Golf Architecture. This is about doing something good for that little part of West Philadelphia. You gentlemen, you wrote a book, we mentioned it earlier, Cubs Creek Golf Club, Uncovering a Treasure. Is it available for purchase? Like if someone's listening to this show right now and they're interested in learning more about the history of Cobbs Creek, is it available? Do you know? So so what we've yes, yeah, so what we've generally done, we we printed up at our own, you know, at our kind of out of our own pockets any number of copies early on to distribute them. Uh, as as Joe found more articles and, and the book got b- 
bigger and bigger, <laughs> now over 400 pages. Uh, that cost grew commensurately. Um, and uh, so we, we've kind of stopped doing that. And what we do is if somebody really has an interest in it, uh, we've asked them to, to reach out to us and we can provide them a link to where they can uh, download a, a copy of the book themselves and if they see fit to print it. But, you know, everybody's kind of going digital these days anyway. So, um, so if I have listeners that want the book, do you want me to put your email in the show notes or how would you like to handle that, Mike? Um, sure. Or have them sure, email me and I, I'll connect you. I, I, either yeah. way is possible. Yeah. 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 We've, you know, we've debated, uh, you know, doing, you know, doing another print. We're in what, like the 12th edition and there's some things that have happened since that last one. And uh, maybe it's 11th, I forget. Maybe now it's 12th to where, yeah, over 400 pages now and in color that, that gets to be uh, a large number at one of these printing places, you know, like 70, dollars $80, $90 or something. And, and for big print that we did a couple of years ago, I just said, Hey, just cover the cost and cover the shipping. And, you know, we'll, 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 we'll get one to you. And who knows, maybe, maybe we'll consider doing that again. Yeah. But, but otherwise we can get it to them electronically. And, and, and the only other thing, Connor, I, I'd like to say as I was thinking about it is, you know, when we, when we say that Cobbs Creek is going to be uh, a fabulous golf course, just by way of background, both Joe and I have played a, a tremendous amount of golf courses over the years. I've been really fortunate to have played over, over a thousand golf courses, big and small. Um, so, you know, our, our hyperbole is based on, on some experience in that in that uh, arena. And, and uh, as I say, it's kept us out of a lot of trouble over the years. Well, Cobbs Creek is an amazing story of what golf can bring to a community, both historically and in present times. Gentlemen, thank you so much for your efforts to see the restoration through at Cobbs Creek. And thank you for joining us today on the show. Thank you so much for having us, Connor. Thank you, Connor. A great golf course marks time, not in years or even decades but in eons. They are the true timeline on which this game is played. A great golf course is immortal, and that is why every golfer should fight for great design. A well-designed golf course challenges the player, it inspires the player, and offers an endless supply of joy. That is why golf course architecture is well represented on the Talking Golf History podcast. Because golf design helps define greatness by giving the game context and an obstacle of affection. These type of stories warm my heart. Two men had a dream to bring life to a golf course, and in doing so, a community. In a time when private clubs are pouring millions of dollars into their restoration efforts, in Philly, there are a few good men and women that are doing the same not just for their benefit, but for the game itself. This isn't a story of restoration. This story is written for the great people of Philadelphia. It is a reminder that golf can help revitalize a neighborhood. It can bring a community together, and it can serve as a hub for what has been and what will be. Until next time, yours in golf history. This is Connor T. Lewis.